0: hi this is father mark bulos with the bible as literature podcast today's program marks the 300th episode of the bible as literature years ago richard's wife holly and i were going back and forth on a title for the education program at saint elizabeth eventually we opted for the ephesus school a name inspired by a paper father paul had recently presented With the Bentons moved to Minnesota, I had been thinking about ideas for a podcast, something like The Priest and The Professor, and Holly, always in earshot of our discussions about the Bible, insisted that we record our conversations so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. With her encouragement, this project became a reality. It is providential that the 300th episode of the podcast falls on the parable of the sower in our series on Matthew. He who has ears, let him hear. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos, And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And, wait for it, Rich, you're listening to episode 300 of the Bible as Literature podcast. This is the 300th morning that we have sat down for a cup of coffee, whether face-to-face or digitally, to discuss the gospel. I'm happy to be here, Rich, and I have appreciated every minute of this program these past few years. It is really a blessing to be able
1: to work through scripture verse by verse. I always tell people when you go verse by verse, you pay attention and you learn much more than if you sit and you read it on your own. Working with another person through each verse is so important. And there's this rabbinic saying that when you study Torah, you have a, teacher, you have a student, and you have a friend. With a teacher, you learn from them. The student, you teach them. With a friend, you teach each other. And I'm grateful that we have been able to go on this journey together, Father, so that we can spend all this time with Torah. I remember the conversation with my wife when she was overhearing you and me talking about Scripture, She said, you know, you guys should record your conversations. The
0: podcast was originally envisioned as the priest and the professor, but we opted for the Bible as Literature podcast to demystify the text and to separate it from people's religious prejudices so that we would deal literally with the Bible as literature, but not in the way that it's handled in a secular context without authority. Those of you who have been listening for a while will recognize immediately that these programs are as much a sermon as they are an academic discussion, because in the Ephesus school, it's very important to us that we as students not set ourselves above the text. The other interesting thing about our program is that over the years, it's been interwoven with life events, because that's how it goes with the study of Scripture. you live and you reflect, and you study Scripture, and you learn from Scripture what your life means. We did a whole series on Ecclesiastes in memory of my father who passed away. I mean, this show for us really is the measure of our work in the gospel for the local church, so we're happy to be here. Today's show brings us to the Matthean parable of the sower. I know we've talked about Mark's parable of the sower, and this past Sunday, preaching on the Lucan parable of the sower, I was trying to help the community understand that the teaching itself is what is differentiated, and that in all the parables of the sower that occur in the Gospels, there is a principle that must be kept top of mind, namely, that it is the seed that is the differentiator. It is the seed that is what is precious. We tend in modern churches, which have proved ineffective at holding the moral center of the country because no one is preaching anymore, we have failed and we tend to present these stories as though they're the story of the community, the story of the soil, of the good soil. And then our whole frame of mind becomes anti-scriptural and idolatrous you really believe that the reason the seed works is because there's something special about your soil. But this is unscientific and anti-scriptural. The seed does what the seed does. And the example that I gave was of two Minnesota gardeners. One who buys all the right equipment, has all the right tools, follows all the right practices takes care of their garden every day, and the other who doesn't know what he's doing and spends like two minutes at the beginning of the season dropping a few seeds and moves on. If the goal is to grow a tomato, let's say that what God demanded of us was to grow a tomato. If that's the goal, if all the good gardener has are cucumber seeds, they will not be able to grow a tomato. This is irrefutable. It is empirical. I don't care what you say on the internet or cable news. This is a fact. You cannot spin it if you don't have a tomato seed. If all you have is a cucumber seed, you cannot make a tomato. And in fact, you're not making anything. The seed is producing what it produces. On the other hand, you could be a careless gardener who doesn't know what he's doing. But because you have a tomato seed, just by dropping it in the soil, you could, through dumb luck, get an excellent tomato and fulfill God's will. This is so important to understand, that it is the seed in and of itself that produces what God wants, and the seed will eventually find a place to land where it can produce what it's going to produce. Understanding this is essential to avoiding the trap of self-righteousness, which has now stripped our churches and our religious communities of the ability to say to the middle of the country, shame on you, that behavior is not okay. We can't say it, because they're proud of themselves and what wonderful soil they are.
1: In entitling this The Bible is Literature Podcast, what's really important is that the Bible is what's centered— when it's the priest and the professor, it's you and me who are centered. And I much prefer it when the Bible is at its center. We believe in the holiness, the uniqueness of this text. And we also believe in its authority. So the reason why we read it the way that we do, and you know, I'm glad that you brought up this theme because it's so important. We are not allowed to divorce our reading from any of the skills that we've acquired, whether we've acquired them in secular or religious contexts. We have to use all of our facilities to understand this. We are not allowed to set aside our brains. We're not allowed to set aside the way that we know how to read in order to read this text differently. We have to bring all of our faculties to bear on this. It's our duty to do so. Everything that I learned how to do as an academic, per se as an academic, meaning reading and writing and looking to evaluate arguments of different authors, all this stuff, I am required by duty to read this text with that. By doing so, we are able to unlock certain things. I realize one of the things that we often do, Father, and this is thanks to many things that we've learned from Father Paul, is to look at what the author is not doing, what the author is not writing. When the author leaves something out or puts something in, those are the things we really have to be paying attention to. Using our creativity, using our intellect, using our ability to read, all of this has to go into this. And you and I, in speaking with each other, in dialogue, you and me, we're not in dialogue with the text. The text is over us. You and I, we dialogue. But that is so that we can submit to the text because it isn't, for us, a secular text. It is a holy text, and it bears authority over us. We believe that it's not enough simply to read it, but that by reading it, it must bear fruit. And that's why this parable is providentially the one that we read at the 300th episode as we reflect on what we're doing here at the Bible as Literature Podcast, because we are bound to to work to bear fruit. Now, like you said, it's the seed that bears fruit. We are simply soil. And when I say simply, I want to emphasize this. We're merely the soil. We're merely the vehicle so that the seed can do what it does. If we aren't enabling the seed to do what it does, it's going to do it somewhere else. I mean, don't forget the entire time Dear listener, we've been talking about Jesus going everywhere he can to sow as much seed as he can. He needs to talk to these people, and if they're wasting his time, it's not worth it. He's going to go someplace else because he's got to keep sowing the seed because there's no guarantee that this seed is going to land someplace where it's going to actually bear fruit. But fruit must be born. Fruit must be born, and if the soil is not going to cooperate— Too bad for you, we're going to have to go someplace else where the seed can bear its fruit. You have the packet of tomato seeds, they're either going to bear fruit or not. But if you need tomatoes, you just plant as much seed as you can. It's going to always do better and always have a greater success rate than cucumber seeds if you're trying to grow a tomato. We always have to be making sure, as the hearers of the word, that we are receptive to it. And when I say receptive, I want to be perfectly clear what I mean, and that's submit to it. It's to do what it says. Whatever we can do to allow that seed to bear fruit, we have to cultivate that as the soil. We're not the gardener in this case. We're simply the soil. There has to be depth to the soil. There has to be purity to the soil, and there has to be a way that this seed can do its work and we, as the soil, don't make it harder or stand in its way.
0: That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. So, in these first two verses, we have some key metaphors in the Gospel of Matthew. The sea is the Roman sea, so he's sitting rich at the edge which in Matthew is signaling his intent to carry the Torah to the nations. And the fact that he had to get into a boat and sit down is a way of saying that his preaching was gathering the crowds, and so he was sitting as the teacher in the boat, which is a metaphor for the church community, And the whole crowd was standing for judgment. So he's sitting on his throne as the head of this community, giving a word, and everyone is standing for judgment on the shore. It's a beautiful image. You shouldn't picture things, but to the extent that we're trying to understand the metaphor, you just see him sitting on a boat, looking out at the crowds, and you realize that this is the courtroom of the Gospel of Matthew.
1: I mean, it's such a beautiful Image, Father Paul used to remind us that in the ancient way of doing things, the teacher sat because he was an old man and he needed to sit, and the student stood as opposed to the other way around that we have today. And so we have a classic image here, but it's the same as you mentioned, Father, as in a courtroom. When the judge comes and sits, everyone stands, and they only sit once the judge says so. And in old-school classrooms like I had in Kiev, when the professor walked into the room, all the students stood until the professor said, sit. And so this is a classic image. This is a classic configuration of the room. But when I see Jesus, especially in light of what we've been talking about in Jesus's job of spreading the seed, when I see him in front of many crowds, ohlipoli, That means that Jesus is about to do his most important work. This is when he's farming. This is when he's spreading seed. This is when he is doing what he came to earth to do, which is to inform people and to teach people of the coming kingdom of his Father.
0: And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Of course, the mention of parables is a reference ultimately to Ezekiel, who established the Mashal, the one who gives the Mashal as the voice of the biblical canon. And here it's the central Mashal of the New Testament because, as I said, it appears in other Gospels, and it emphasizes the work that Needs to be done by those who want to submit to the seed so that it can do what it's going to do. He is explaining in parables what this whole business of Bible study is all about. And it's interesting in verse 4 that the birds came and ate the seeds up because the bird, which Father Paul pointed out this past Tuesday, which is also an animal from the ground, even though it can fly, it has to land on the ground. The bird was brought in the ark so that later it could be used by Noah to go and find land. So the bird, which could function as a hopeful metaphor, here is functioning as something destructive. And to the extent that the symbol of the Roman Empire was the eagle, something that has persisted in the empires of the earth till this day. Everybody wants an eagle on their flag because of the Romans. The birds here could very well symbolize the Romans chipping away at the work of the gospel. Yeah,
1: I mean, the forces at work to keep the seed from bearing fruit are many. And, you know, the the way that this puts it, this very simple language is a sower went out to sow. If we think of Jesus as the sower, what is a sower supposed to do? Sow. That's his destiny. That is what he was on earth to do. If he is a sower, then he finally goes and he sows. That's the thing. That's why we don't hear very much about Jesus until he starts teaching, because he came as a sower to sow seed. And this is it. He went out to sow. In this first image of the birds, the seed fell by the wayside, meaning you have the plowed area and you have the footpath. It landed on ground that was not ready to accept it. It never went below the surface of the ground and therefore was easy pickings for birds. Birds have very good eyes. It was
0: on the surface, the ground was not plowed. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched because they had no root and withered away. One of the things that strikes me immediately when we began this section with this metaphor of the judgment, a foretaste of the kingdom, Jesus enthroned as the head of the community, speaking the word of the Father to the nations, standing at the edge of the Roman Sea, standing for judgment. And so now in verse 6, the sun had risen and they were scorched, which in the way that the metaphor works, harkens to judgment
1: they're vulnerable definitely to the sun i mean when the sun comes up if they don't have that protection of the soil then the seed can't bear its fruit in the first metaphor the soil was not ready in this image the soil has something blocking it so there's some soil it's thin though and it's surrounded by rocks so the soil is not able to accept the seed first one, it wasn't able to accept it because it wasn't prepared. This case is just bad soil, and in a way, it's also not prepared well. I mean, my wife grew up on a farm, and the first thing they would have to do in the spring was her least favorite job on the farm, which is you go through the field, and you pick up rocks. You follow your dad in the pickup truck, and you just throw giant rocks into the back of the truck. This is how you prepare, but the soil— can't bear the fruit it cannot submit to the teaching if it's filled with these rocks like nobody did anything there's this laziness and there's this lip service yeah 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 we want to have the seed but you're not doing anything you're not making this soil ready for anything to happen so if the seed is going to bear fruit it's not going to be with you because you're not ready And as soon as something else comes up, as soon as the judgment comes, I mean, you have nothing to show for it because there's no root to it. It can't actually grow. It can land. It can be protected by the soil, and at least the birds can't eat it, but it can't live, and it's going to die before it bears fruit.
0: The thing about the example you give of Holly working with her dad picking up rocks is that people tend to think that because the seed gets all the credit and the seed is what differentiates, that means there's no work to do. That's not true. There's tons of work to do. You just get no credit for it because you could do all of that work and if the seed doesn't come, the work is useless. That's the key point. So Holly and her dad could have worked to clear the rocks from the field, but if they didn't get the right seed or the seed was damaged or there was no seed, there'd be no crop. This is the point that's being made again and again in the gospel. Remember who provided the seed. Remember that it is the seed that sets us apart. I appreciate the example because it allows us to clarify that point. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out, and others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. So finally, you have yet one more example of how the community gets in the way of allowing the seed to do what the seed does until finally you find a community that submits and that is willing to do the thankless work on the off chance that the god of abraham on a whim would decide to impart the seed to them and the test in matthew is are we willing to do the thankless work of the farmer with no guarantees On the hope that God would gift us with his differentiating seed. That's the test. The thing I find so interesting is that
1: obviously this field in verse 7 had all different kinds of seed in it. It had the cucumber seeds and the tomato seeds. If you're trying to grow a tomato, being surrounded by cucumbers is not going to help. Having so many seeds in is the problem. You have to be laser focused on this one seed and you have to root out all the other seeds. Allowing any kind of seed to take root is just as much a problem as allowing no seeds to take root. Because if you're allowing every kind of seed, nothing is going to bear fruit and you're going to end up with weeds. It's only once there's this laser focused work on preparing the soil through plowing and removing the stones, separating any kind of seed out that is not the seed whose fruit you want. This is the only way. But what's fantastic about this is that the amount of fruit is not up to you. Some it's 30, some it's 60, some it's 100. You don't get to say. And it is not based on your work. And it is only the sower and the seed who do the real work of making sure that seed is there. But God is the one that gives the increase.
0: Neither the sower, nor the plowsman, nor the soil. I love this last verse, Richard. It appears in other Gospels. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, because it reflects the total control that God has when his letter is read in the churches. If you have an ear, that means that you can hear, so you can't escape hearing when it's read aloud. It's very literal in that sense so whoever has ears i'm saying it and you're hearing it if you're standing on the beach and if you're hearing it if you have ears you are hearing it you're under judgment it's ominous at the end of this parable they are now being tested are you a soil that will submit in order to receive the instruction are your teachers your religious leaders willing to do the work to prepare the soil to receive the differentiating seed. If you have ears, you've just heard this story, so now the pressure is on. It's a very beautiful expression. He who has soil, let him receive the seed. Well said, Dr. Benton. Thanks very much, and congratulations on episode 300. Take care.